This program is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. Now, if you have a copy of my commentary, you may want to check and follow with me. If not, then you listen. The introduction. The book of Revelation appears not to accomplish what its title describes. Readers are confused by all the images, figures, and numbers they meet in this book. Pastors usually preach only a sevenfold series on the letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor, recorded in chapters 2 and 3. And then they go on and say, Now I start a new series. And they drop Revelation. People regard the book as Scripture, but for themselves they fail to claim it as such. For many readers... Revelation is not revelation, but rather prophetic mystery that transcends human understanding. The Greek title of this book is Apocalypse, or Apocalypsis, which is an ongoing uncovering of God's truth. Yet in this last book of the Bible, God permits us to see something of Christ and the church in heaven and on earth. And to use a teenage expression, it's awesome. Looking carefully at the book, we begin to realize that this volume is not mere human composition similar to books including the Apocalypses of 1st Enoch, 4th Ezra, and 2nd Baruch. In Revelation, we realize that the triune God is revealing His Word to the reader. That is, God Himself is speaking to His people in this last book of the Bible. This becomes evident in the introductory words, the Revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him. 1 verse 1. And in the letters to the seven churches, there we hear the voice of Jesus, who concludes each letter with the words, The Spirit says to the churches. In short, we have God the Father. We have Jesus, the Son of God. And we have the Holy Spirit. The last chapter sounds the voice of Jesus, chapter 22, verses 7, 12 through 16, and 20. The voice of the Spirit, Revelation 22, verse 17. And God's warning not to add or detract from this book. In fact, God warns us not to tamper with His Word. Should we neglect it, we would be guilty before God. Neglecting this message is akin to detracting something from the Scriptures. God tells us to regard Revelation as His holy word, and He instructs us to read it reverently. The warning God utters in Revelation 22, verses 18 through 19, can be compared to a copyright notice back of the title page of a modern book. Here it is. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues written in this book. If anyone takes anything away from the words of the prophecy of this book, God will take away from him the tree of life. They'll take away from the tree of life and from the holy city his portion of the words written in this book. If we are told to read Revelation thoughtfully, how do we read and understand its message? The book directs attention to its primary composer, God. Throughout the book, 
we detect the work of the divine artist, namely God himself. Let me just give you a little bit of a hint how I know that God himself is the author, primary author of this book. There are seven Beatitudes in this book. You find the first Beatitude in chapter 1, verse 3. And then you go on to chapter 14, there you have one. Blessed those who die in the Lord. And then you come to chapter 22, and there are five, up to that point, there are five Beatitudes and two more to go. And I don't think for one moment that John said, well, I have already five Beatitudes. I want to have two more in order to make it seven because number seven is the number of completion. So let me put one right here in chapters 22 and one at the end. And now there are seven. I have my doubts. I think the Holy Spirit controlled John as John was writing down the book of Revelation. It is God's work, not man's work. Man is only a tool in the hand of God. And I'm not saying that we are talking here about mechanical inspiration. Understand me correctly, please. God is the chief architect of this wonderful book called Revelation in which he reveals a structure that in itself is a Indeed, it is divinely constructed in which God shows his handiwork. Okay, after the introduction, I talk about the pattern. And under it, I look at numbers. One of the first features a reader notices in the use of numbers and their significance in Revelation to an, imagi- to an amazing degree, number seven is predominant both explicitly and implicitly. This number should not be taken literally, but must be understood as an idea that expresses totality or completeness. <coughs> the number seven appears 44 times in Revelation. It is the perfect number. For instance... Jesus tells John to write letters to the seven churches of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These churches were located along a route which in ancient times took an oval form from west to north, then on to the east, and last to the south. But the church of Colossae located in the vicinity of Laodicea, is omitted. And so is the neighboring congregation of Hierapolis, Colossians 4.13. There, Papias, a student of the Apostle John, served as pastor. In Revelation, addressed to only seven churches in the province of Asia, is this, let me say it again, is Revelation addressed to only seven churches in the province of Asia? The answer is no. For Jesus addresses <coughs> the churches of all ages and all places. The number, number seven symbolizes completeness. As a number, seven precedes on many nouns, including, here they are, spirits, golden lampstands, lampstands, Seals, horns, angels, trumpets, thunders, heads, crowns, plagues, bowls, hills, and kings. In addition, there are 7,000 people killed because of an earthquake, 1113. All these numbers are explicit with the use of the numeral. But the implicit count of this number is even more striking. There are two passages that record songs of praise sung by a heavenly host. The first one is 5 verse 12. There you read seven attributes. Count them, will you? 
Here they are. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and thanksgiving. Exactly seven. I go on to seven verse twelve and read. Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Seven attributes. Further, there are seven beatitudes in Revelation given here in abbreviated form. Blessed is the one who reads. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Blessed is the one who watches. Blessed are the ones who are called. Blessed and holy is the one who has part. And notice now, we're up to six. Six and seven are found in chapter 22. Blessed is the one who keeps the words. And blessed are they who wash their robes. Once more, I don't think that John said, now, this is my last chapter. I have to get them in yet. No, this was God's doings. Continuing. Also in this series, locusts described as horses in 9 verse 7 through 10 display seven distinguishing marks that appear with, one, crowns of gold on their heads, two, faces of men, three, hair of women, four, teeth of lions, five, breastplates of iron, six, wings that make the sound of thundering horses and chariots in battle, seven, Tails and stings of scorpions. The word anion, lamb, referring to Christ, occurs 28 times, the sum of 7 times 4, while the numeral 7 signifies completeness, number 4 is the number, the numerical symbol of the created world. The expression soon or quickly with reference to the fulfillment of prophecy and return of Christ, appears seven times. And last, the word prophecy occurs seven times in Revelation. Now, I have a footnote at that point. It reads, the Greek word porneia, Fornication also occurs seven times. But this should be interpreted in the light of the prostitute whose sins are piled up, literally are cleaving to heaven and are complete. I was teaching this course. (coughs) One of the students raised his hand and said, yes, seven is the number of completeness, but what do you do with fornication? (laughs) In other words, Professor, I have you over the barrel. And no, you have not read Scripture correctly. You haven't done your homework. Will you please go to that chapter, chapter 18, and you will notice that when the writer speaks about pornaya, fornication, he puts it in the context of saying, and your sins are piled up to heaven. They are, so to speak, in the nostrils of God and there is no more room and the last sin is cleaving to heaven. The end has come. Punishment has come. And that's how you should read it. Seven is complete in regard to sin. I continue, the number four represents the four living creatures, four angels, four corners of the earth, four winds, four angels bound at the Euphrates. Categories of four abound in Revelation. Here are a few. Tribe, language, people, and nation. Praise, honor, glory, and power. Sword, famine, disease, wild beast. Peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. 
murders, witchcraft, fornication, thefts. Many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Harps, musicians, flutists, and trumpeters. Number four describes God's creation, the four corners of the earth, that is, the four directions of the wind. God is the ruler of and in His creation, which is evident in the use of the relevant expression, the one who lives forever and ever, occurring four times. The numeral three appears frequently to describe three quarts of barley, three angels, three plagues of fire, smoke and sulfur, three unclean spirits, the great city split into three parts, three gates each to the east, north, south, and west. A series of three referred to the deity with a triple shout of the living creature saying, Holy, Holy, Holy and a description of God's power that was and is and is to come. Also note the series of Jesus Christ, God, and His servants. 1 verse 1. Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Indeed, series of three occur everywhere in the book. Ten is a number of completeness in the decimal system. When you come to 11, you start anew for a new decade. This numeral in Revelation refers to 10 days of persecution, a description of the dragon with 10 horns, the beast coming out of the sea with 10 horns and 10 crowns, and the scarlet beast that had 10 horns. As ten is a number that relates to Satan's servants and activities, the numeral twelve describes the elect of the twelve tribes, the woman symbolizing the church with twelve stars on her head, and the new Jerusalem with twelve gates, twelve angels, twelve tribes of Israel, This city has twelve foundations on which the twelve names of the apostles are written. It measures in length, breadth, and height twelve thousand stadia. And along both sides of the river flowing from the throne of God are twelve fruit-bearing trees. Also the term elder, in the plural, elders, presbyteroi, appears twelve times. And now comes the interesting part. Every now and then you pick up just a little bit of a detail and say, I never expected this. Opening the concordance and going through the book of Revelation, in regard to number 10, I learned that 10 in the book of Revelation always refers to Satan, to his followers, and to his works. And then it picked up number 12 in the book of Revelation, and I learned that number 12 always refers to God, to His followers, His people, and to His works. Interesting. Number 12 is the number of perfection. We continue with a contrast. Revelation is a book filled with polarities. Christ versus Satan. Light versus darkness, life versus death, love versus hatred, heaven versus hell. Throughout the book, this contrast appears even in all the details. John portrays the Trinity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But by comparison, Satan's Trinity is the devil, the beast, and the false prophet. The words... Quote, who is and who was and who is to come, end of quote, are a paraphrase of the divine name. But the beast is the one who, quote, once was and is not and is about to go up from the abyss and go to his destruction, or the beast that was and is not and will come. Good and evil are contrasted 
in God the Father versus Satan the dragon. The Son of God versus the Antichrist. Christ versus Antichrist. And the Holy Spirit versus the false prophet. The Bride of Christ versus the prostitute. And Jerusalem versus Babylon. God empowers His Son with authority to do His will, while Satan gives power and authority to the beast. Jesus sits on His throne like where Satan has His throne. The Son appears as the Lamb that was slain, by contrast the seven-headed beast, as one head and a fatal wound which had been healed. The lamb has seven horns and seven eyes, whereas the beast coming up out of the earth has two horns. Jesus reveals himself as the living one who is alive forever and ever. Conversely, Satan, the beast, and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire, which is death, where they are tormented forever and ever. Jesus holds the key of death and Hades. Satan holds the keys of the abyss. Jesus is victorious and destined to ultimate triumph, but Satan, who appears to be successful, is doomed in reality to ignominious and everlasting defeat. The kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of Satan reveal additional contrasts. Believers receive the seal of the living God on their foreheads. Unbelievers have the mark of the beast on their right hand and forehead. Believers bear the name of the Lamb and the Father on their foreheads. Unbelievers have the number 666, which is the name and number of the beast. Note also, the apostles of the Lord versus the false apostles in Ephesus. The angels serving God versus the demons controlled by Satan. The victory of Christ and the saints versus the defeat of the Antichrist and his followers. Next, the segment dealing with emphasis. When we stress something in print, we use an exclamation mark or we write in italics. But these rules of composition were unknown to authors in biblical times. They employed the technique of repetition to hold the reader's attention. A few examples from the scriptures make this point clear. God called Moses at the burning bush at Mount Sinai and said, Moses, Moses. Jesus told Peter about Satan's request to sift the disciples as wheat and uttered the words, Simon. Simon, and the risen Lord called Paul near Damascus saying, literally, Saul, Saul. The double use of the name signifies emphasis. Jewish people resorted to repetition for stressing the intent of a concept. They would often do so by giving two examples that convey the same message. In Egypt, Joseph interpreted dreams, one for the cupbearer, the other for the baker, and two dreams for Pharaoh. Moses was given the power to perform two miracles in the presence of the Israelites, turning his staff into a snake, making his hand leprous. Wisdom literature, especially Psalms and Proverbs, is filled with parallelism that clarifies the point the writer intends to stress. Here is one example out of many. Quote, In the way of righteousness there is life. Along that path is immortality. Taken from Proverbs 12:28. The same principle is woven into the structure of Revelation, where we encounter repetition for the sake of emphasis. John records the words of an angel who shouts in a loud voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And the kings of the earth, the, the merchants, 
And the seafarers cry out, Woe, woe, O great city! The letter to the church at Pergamum contains these lines, quote, However, I have a few things against you that you have there, those that hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the Israelites to make them eat food offered to an idol and commit fornication. So even you have those who similarly hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Revelation 2, verses 14 through 15. Jesus is not saying that he refers to two classes of people in the church at Pergamon, but rather that those who have followed erroneous teachings are all the same. There is no difference between the intent of Balaam and that of the Nicolaitans. Balaam intended to defeat the Israelites through deceptive prophecy. The Nicolaitans enter the church with deceptive doctrine. The two parties reveal the same intent, namely to conquer God's people. Likewise, the teachings of Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, differs not from that of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. The song of Moses and the song of the Lamb are not two different hymns, but one in the same song that extols the deeds of the Lord God Almighty. John fell at the feet of an angel to worship him, whereupon the angel told him not to worship him but God. Similarly, in the last chapter of Revelation, John relates that he fell down to worship at the feet of an angel and was told not to worship him but God. The repetition serves to emphasize the command to worship not the creature, but the Creator. Next, repetition. The principle to repeat for emphasis and clarity is also evident in the description of the woman's flight into the desert for 1260 days to a place God prepared for her. Revelation 12, the first six verses. But eight verses later, we again read that she flew to the desert to a place prepared for her for a time, times and half a time, 12.14. John repeats the same event for the place that God prepared for her is the desert. And the length of time is the same, 1260 days equals 42 months or three and a half years. Yet there is a difference namely that of the ideal and the actual. For instance, the first six verses of chapter 12 depict the scene of the glorious woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She is pregnant and gives birth to a son, who rules with a rod of iron and is snatched up to God's throne. This scene is an ideal that points to reality that is beyond itself. The reality takes form with Christ's birth and includes his ascension to God's throne. Reality is depicted in the scene of warfare in heaven when Satan, now fully identified, verse 9, is hurled to the earth with his angels. The devil realizes that his time is short. He is enraged and wages war by pursuing the woman. This woman flees to a place prepared for her and she receives help from the earth. The rest of her offspring, the believers, are waging a spiritual war against Satan and individually endure the brunt of his wrath. Thus, the first scene that depicts the exalted woman is idealism. The second scene describing the persecuted church is realism. Between the first and second scenes, John placed the report on the war Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels. When the dragon, <coughs> namely Satan, is hurled to the earth along with his angels, the church not only endures his anger, but overcomes him by the blood of the Lamb, by the testimony of God's word. The placing of this battle account between the two scenes depicting the woman is to demonstrate that 
the plan of redemption shall be achieved among people, not angels. And next, the parallels. All through the book of Revelation are parallels presented in multiples of seven. There are seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. There are seven seals followed by seven trumpets and concluded by seven bowls. If we begin with the letter, letters to the seven churches, we note parallels in their structure. Each letter consists of seven parts. <clears throat> Number one. The address to each of the seven churches in Asia Minor. Number two, an aspect of God's, the, the Lord's appearance to John at Patmos. Number three, an evaluation of the spiritual health of the individual church. Number four, either words of praise or reproof. Number five, words of exhortation. Number six, promises to the one who overcomes. And seven, a command to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In the first three letters, the sequence of points six and seven is reversed. This makes for a division of the seven into three and four letters respectively. The second point in each case presents a single aspect of Jesus' appearance. Notice the separate parts taken from the description of John's vision of Jesus. For the church in Ephesus, 2 verse 1, seven stars in his right hand, the golden lampstands, taken straight from 1 verse 16 and 13. The church in Smyrna, 2 verse 8, first and last who died and came to life again, taken straight from 1 verse 17 and 18. The church at Pergamum, 2 verse 12, the double-edged sword, taken from 1 verse 16. The church of Thyatira, 2.18. Eyes as blazing fire, feet as burnished bronze, taken from 1 verse 14 and 15. The church of Sardis, 3 verse 1. Seven spirits and seven stars, 1 verse 4 and 16. The church at Philadelphia, 3 verse 7, holding the key, taken from 118. And last, the church at Laodicea, 314, the faithful witness, taken from 1 verse 5. Next, the seven trumpets and the seven bowls show distinct parallels, first by listing individual parts, and second by following an identical sequence. We acknowledge that the sequence of the parts in the seven seals is not as pronounced as in that of the trumpets and the bowls. But even in the flow of the seven seals, we note an emphasis on both earth and heaven. If we juxtapose the seven trumpets and the seven bowls, we discover an interesting parallel. The three series of seals, trumpets and bowls, each conclude with a reference to the consummation of the world. The sixth seal, not the seventh, because of different function, introduces the great day of God's wrath and the wrath of the Lamb, which no one is able to endure. All classes of people cry out to the mountains and rocks to hide them from the face of the one who sits on the throne. 6 verses 15 and 17. The sounding of the seventh trumpet causes the 24 elders to worship God and say, The nations were angry, your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead. 11 verse 18. And last, subsequent to the seventh angel pouring out his bowl, a loud voice from the throne of God says, It is done. 16 verse 17. The fury of God's wrath causes that every mountain and island hides from His presence. All three series not only conclude with a description of the consummation, but also demonstrate parallelism. 
The parallels feature expressions that include to hide, the wrath of God, mountains, earthquakes, lightning, voices. The intent of these three passages is to refer to the day of judgment when the end has come. And now the section on division. The parallelism depicted in the three sets, seals, trumpets, bowls, suggests that the writer is not presenting a chronological sequence, but rather different aspects of the same events. Let me stop you for just a moment. You can take the book of Revelation either in a literal sense and go from Revelation 1 verse 1 straight through on a straight line to Revelation 22 verse 21 and say everything happens sequentially, little by little. You can also say, no, that is not quite the case. If you look at Revelation, you find repetition. And John is actually giving us a spiral approach a spiral approach in which he constantly refers back and again to the same elements. And we call that, to use a big word, recapitulation. It's a recapitulation theory. There's one other thing that I'd like to mention at this moment, and that is you can take everything in the book of Revelation literally, Or you can say, no, what we find in the book of Revelation is symbolism. John is giving us symbols. Again, I take it symbolically. The woman portrayed in chapter 17 as a great prostitute is the evil of immorality which you find everywhere whether you're in Canada or the United States, or you go to Mexico, or you go to Brazil, or you go to Europe, it's amazing how far society has fallen because of immorality. And there you have the woman. I move on. The parallelism depicted in the three sets Seals, trumpets, bowls suggest that the writer is presenting a chronolog- not a chronological sequence, but rather different aspects of the same events. This is even more pronounced when we notice the frequent indirect and direct references to the final judgment. Here again you have that recapitulation theory. You come back to the same point, a high point. Christ is coming with the clouds. One seven. Imminent judgment for sinners while the saints around the throne. 6 verse 16, 7 verse 17. The time for judging the dead has come. 11, 18. The coming judgment is symbolized as the judge harvesting the earth. 14, 15 verse 16. God's wrath is poured as a description of the final judgment. 16 verses 17 through 21. This description is even more vivid with respect to the rider on the white horse coming to judge with justice and to make war on his enemies. 19, the verses 11 through 21. And the judgment comes to its climax when the books are opened and each person is judged. 20, the verses 11 through 15. William Hendrickson, my predecessor, calls these seven references to the final judgment progressive parallelism that divides the apocalypse in seven parts. Here are the seven parts. One, Christ in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, chapters 1, 2, and 3. Two, the book with seven seals, chapters 4, 5, 6, and 7. Number three, the seven trumpets of judgment, chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11. Point four, the woman and the male child persecuted by the dragon and his helpers. Chapters 12, 13, and 14. Five, 
the seven bowls of wrath, chapters 15 and 16. Six, the fall of the great harlot and the beast, chapters 17, 18, 19. And last, number seven, the judgment, the new heaven and the new earth, chapters 20, 21 and 22. And now, the conclusion to this part. The last book in Scripture is unique in its structure. It reveals a human author whom God inspired to write Revelation. Using his writing skills, John presents sets of illustrations that convey a number of events. But these events portrayed in each individual set must be perceived as different aspects of the same sequence or occurrence. With every additional new set, new light is cast on the illustrations so that the reader gains a better understanding of the message of the Apocalypse. Not John, but God, who has enhanced its competition, composition with extraordinary care, proves to be the great architect of this remarkable book. Revelation reveals unequal precision and planning with respect to its structure, the use of numbers and figures, and choice of words. The last book in the Bible demonstrates God's handiwork from beginning to end. Now, after all that, we continue with the figurative language of the book. As the prophetic books and the wisdom literature of the Old Testament are filled with signs, so the last book of the New Testament has its share of symbols. Sometimes John interprets a symbol as in the case of that ancient serpent called the devil and Satan, 12 verse 9. And the waters that John observed as peoples and crowds and nations and languages. At other times, the setting, usage, and characteristic of a given word provides an explanation. What we need to consider is an adequate description of figurative language. First then, the description. The world is filled with symbols that may convey diverse meanings to a, few, to a viewer. For example, a flag of a particular nation is a source of pride to a, na to a national of that country who, traveling abroad, suddenly spots the emblem of his homeland. Old glory! But for a citizen of a nation that has been treated unjustly by the government and armed forces of that first-mentioned country, the sight of its flag fills him or her with aversion and disgust. The cross is a symbol that speaks volumes to a Christian, but creates antipathy in peoples of many other religions. Let me stop here for just a moment. I had a student by the name of Andre Vatusi, who graduated a number of years ago. Andre was born into a Jewish family in Brazil. And then he immigrated to Israel because he was a Jew and was fully accepted, obviously. A Jew in Israel receiving Jewish citizenship. And then he returned to Israel to uh, Brazil and he met the sons of Dr. Paul Long and he came to know the Lord Jesus and eventually he came to the United States and obviously he came to RTS because of Dr. Long. In his last year, almost the last month of his stay, I talked to Andre, and I said, Andre, tell me, you are a Jew, 
you have become a Christian. But tell me, when a Jew enters a Christian church, what goes on in his soul? He said, aversion. And I said, why? He said, first of all, that cross in your church reminds us, Jewish people of the Crusades, when you Christians came and you destroyed the Jews in Israel and in Jerusalem. And secondly, the cross reminds us of the Holocaust when a so-called Protestant nation, Germany, destroyed six million of our countrymen. That cross will always be the barrier. And how true. We have it coming. It's a symbol. To an observer, a symbol conveys meaning that is proportionate to the direct or indirect contact he or she has had with the field that a symbol represents. Both the Old and New Testaments are full of symbolical language that relates to a variety of classes, nature, persons and number, persons and names, numbers, colors, and creatures. And now we're going to take them one by one. First, nature. God warned Adam and Eve not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and he placed cherubim with a flaming sword at the entrance of the Garden of Eden to guard the way to the tree of life. Genesis 2, 9 and 17. Three verses 22 and 24. References to the tree of life appear not only at the beginning, but also at the end of God's written revelation. In 2 verse 7, 22 verse 2, 14 and 19. The symbolic language of the apocalypse is evident in 22 verse 2. On either side of the river was the tree of life bearing twelve kinds of fruit. According to each month of the year it gave its fruit. And the leaves of the tree were to heal the nations. God told Elijah to stand on Mount Sinai, for the Lord was to pass by. A great and powerful wind blew. An earthquake shook the mountain. A fire burned, but God was not in any of them. He appeared as a gentle whisper. 1 Kings 19, the verses 11 and 12. The book of Revelation is filled with symbolic meanings, expressions, relating to nature, including a strong wind, an earthquake, a consuming fire, and a period of silence. Jesus instituted the sacrament of baptism with water and that of the Lord's Supper with bread and wine. His broken body and shed blood symbolize that the believer is forgiven, reconciled to God, and a partaker of eternal riches and glory. In his teaching about the law, Jesus used the symbol of the yoke. And when Paul describes the Christian's spiritual armor, he refers to shoes of the gospel of peace, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the sword of the Spirit, the helmet of salvation, and communication in the Spirit. Have you counted them? There are exactly seven. The writer of the Apocalypse resorts to the symbolism of a voice like a trumpet, a sea of glass, the sky rolled up like a scroll, and a river of the water of life. Now, persons and names. The New Testament often employs names to refer to persons as such, but to, pardon me, the New Testament often employs names not to refer to persons as such, but to their status, their significance, their work. To illustrate, Abraham personifies the father of all believers, Moses personifies the law of God, 
Moses and Elijah are with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, where Moses embodies the law and Elijah the prophets, the entire Old Testament. Paul designates Adam as the father of the human race, and James portrays Job as the embodiment of perseverance. John's revelation records names that illustrate faithfulness, Antipas in 2 verse 13, deceit, Balaam in 2.14, seduction, Jezebel in 2.20. He mentions Sodom and Egypt as symbols of immorality and slavery respectively. 11 verse 8. For him, Mount Zion is the symbol of a new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven as God's dwelling place with his people. And now, Numbers. We have already discussed certain numbers, but to be complete, we also should look at the significance of individual numbers. Thus, the numeral one denotes unity, which for the Jewish people was codified, codified or codified? Codified. You are the expert. Codified it shall be. In the creed, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Two is the number of balance and sufficiency exemplified in the human body. I have two ears, two eyes, two arms, two hands, two legs, two feet. Many times in Revelation, the number three describes the triune God. Four refers to God's creation, as is evident from the four directions of the winds and the four seasons of the year. Often standing by itself, five is half of ten, and in that relationship it is complete and is evident with respect to our physical body with ten fingers and ten toes. But I would also like to add that five in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, is actually a number of round, a round number, a number which says six of the one, half a dozen of the other. Oh, just give me five, this will do. So you have five sparrows, uh, five brothers of Lazarus, uh, not of Lazarus, of the rich man. You have five foolish virgins, five wise and on and on it goes. Five is a round number. Number six symbolizes Satan's reaching for completeness but always failing to achieve it. Hence, the number of the beast is a triple six, triple failure. Revelation thirteen eighteen. Everywhere in Scripture, but especially in the Apocalypse, seven signifies totality. Number 10 depicts fullness in the decimal system. Number 12 exemplifies perfection and the numeral 1,000 intimates a multitude. Hence, the figure 12,000 stadia for the length, width, and height of the New Jerusalem relates to perfection in the form of a cube. Let me just stop here a moment. Think for just a moment that I have a cube in my hand. I know I have a Bible right here. But this is a cube. Now, I have four edges at the top. I have four edges at the bottom. I have four edges going down vertically. That's a number 12 edges for a cube. And now we read about 144,000. You read that in chapter 7 and again in chapter 14. And in chapter 21 you read about the new Jerusalem, 12,000 stadia. Times 
12 edges of the cube is 144,000. And that should be interpreted as perfection times perfection times a multitude, a thousand. And that's 144,000. Now, I would like to challenge you. If you take this number literally, 12,000 stadia is 1,400 miles, which is a distance from San Diego to Houston, Texas. And is a distance from Houston, Texas to the Niagara Falls. Well, you say, we can travel that in a couple of days. How about going straight up? Because we have a cube. We have 12,000 this way, 12,000 that way, and 12,000 straight up. 1,400 miles. The astronauts have only begun. How do you explain if you take it literally? But if you say, no, we're talking here about the very presence of God, which is perfection. Then go to the dedication of Solomon's temple. I believe it is found in 1 Kings chapter 6, if I'm correct. And there you find the description of the Holy of Holies, which is portrayed as a cube. Perfect. So, from Solomon's temple, the most holy place, holy of holies, perfection, to Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem, perfection. That's all it means. We continue. John saw the number of the mounted troops destroyed by four angels to be 200 million horses with riders on them. May I again, I hate to do this, but may I again say, if you take this literally, can you prove there are 200 million horses in the world today? and 200 million riders for combat as well? Or is the writer trying to say this is an innumerable multitude? Is that all he wishes to say? And the answer is yes. John saw the number of mounted troops destroyed by four angels to be 200 million. This number symbolizes an incalculable army of men and horses to designate the forces opposed to God, His anointed one, and His people. The angels are released to destroy these forces. So that a third of mankind is killed. The author's use of the expression time, times and a half, 12 verse 14, accords with 42 months and 1260 days. The expression time, times and a half, derives from Daniel 7, verse 25, which refers to a period of three and a half years. The numbers clearly convey a symbolic message, for no one is able to pinpoint the exact date of fulfillment. Please, don't take 1260 literally, or you don't even do that, because you're saying 1260 days, we take it as 1260 years. And then where do you begin and where do you end up? It doesn't work. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. The preceding program has been brought to you by RTS on iTunes U from the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary 
and may not be reproduced or disseminated in part or in whole for sale or for profit without expressed written consent. To listen to other courses or to access other materials from RTS, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu.